Good morning. Uh, Brian announced a, a new membership class beginning next Sunday, I believe, here at Grace Community Church. Next Sunday, right, Brian? Thank you. And uh, we, we completed a membership class back in November, and I announced a number of new members, welcomed a number of new members at that time, and uh, it's my privilege to add to that list this morning a few additional members. And so I just want to put them on the spot and draw your attention to them. I actually didn't do a head count. I know one is here. I'm not sure the others are, so this might be a little bit awkward, but we'll see how it, see how it goes. But Carl Hewitt, just sitting back there. Thank you, Carl. Yes, related to Alan and Diane. And so we welcome Carl into fellowship, into membership here at Grace Community Church. Uh, Trevor and Alice Hansen, are you back there somewhere? Yes, yeah, stand up. You guys stand up. You're way in the back. And they have little uh, Titus. Yeah, Titus with them. And so it's our privilege again to announce their membership as well. Two for two. That's good. See if I can go three for three. Branson and Hannah Sanders. Yes, excellent. Great to see you folks. And their little boy, Gad. Correct? Gad. And so that's exciting to uh, welcome these ones into membership here at Grace Community Church, and uh, what a thrill it will be to see how the Lord uses us in their lives, them in our lives, as we seek to grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me now to our text. It's found in the book of James, chapter 2. In this chapter, James is building on a motif that he introduces at the end of chapter 1, simply this, the nature of true religion, or in his own terminology, the nature of pure and undefiled religion. And he gives two marks of such religion in chapter 2. The first is found in the first half of the chapter, Verses 1 through 13, we have been there, we have done that, we've considered it together. The second mark of pure and undefiled religion is found in the second half of the chapter, namely verses 14 through 26. So please, follow along as I read publicly for us now the Word of God. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from the works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. 
You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so it begins. Here we are. The most controversial passage in the book of James. Perhaps, I dare say, perhaps, one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. Here's my goal. I don't think it's a very lofty ambition. I think it is very realistic. My goal is that as we dive headfirst into verse 14, and we emerge as good Baptists at the end of uh, next Lord's Day at verse 26, that uh, this passage will be crystal clear, and you will be thinking to yourself, hmm, I don't know what all the big deal was about. I don't see what the fuss is. That is my goal. That is my, that is my ambition these two Sundays. And so to start off, we need to be clear on a couple of things, very clear on two things that will prove of inestimable worth to us as we wrestle with these verses together. The first is this, the analogy of faith. And Ricky is going to bring up a slide on the screen behind me. The analogy of faith. The analogy of, of faith, that phrase, or the rule of faith, it's taken out of Romans chapter 12, verse 6. The analogy of, of faith or the rule of faith is a phrase that biblical interpreters use in reference to a rule that governs how the Bible is to be interpreted. The Bible must be interpreted according to the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is simply this. We interpret scripture by scripture. The obscure by the clear. That is the analogy of faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith states it very succinctly. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. There you have it. It's a great rule. The analogy of faith, the rule of faith, the reformers really championed this, the analogy of faith. I've, I've tried to sum it up in five statements there on the screen. I think they're fairly self-explanatory. Statement number one, God cannot lie nor can he contradict himself. He is truth, the embodiment of truth. God cannot lie, nor can he contradict himself. Okay, check mark. I get that. Statement number two from 1 Timothy 3. All scripture is God breathed. He breathes it out, whereby it is the very word of God. All scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. From Genesis through to Revelation. Okay, check it. I get that. That leads to an obvious conclusion. Therefore, 
Scripture can't lie. Well, if God can't lie nor contradict himself, all Scripture comes from God, therefore, what? Scripture cannot lie, nor can it contradict itself. And so what do I do when I come to a couple of passages of Scripture, maybe two, three, or four, and there seems to be on the surface something of a contradiction? This is where the analogy of faith kicks in. We give theological priority, theological priority to texts that speak more clearly. And having done that, we determine each text's point and scope. And when we do that, we quickly realize that there is no contradiction between these seemingly contradictory texts. We give theological priority to Scripture texts that speak more clearly, most clearly, and we determine each text's point and scope accordingly. Now, I hope you're thinking to yourself, okay, what does this have to do with the verses you just read in James chapter 2? Well, here we go. Let me state it for you simply. Romans 3.28. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You got it? Do I need to repeat it? I'll repeat it anyway. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And yet, what did we read in verse 24 of our text? A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That is an apparent contradiction. What are we going to do with that? Let me first illustrate what we should not do with that. We should not make a mess of it. Martin Luther made a downright mess of it, quoting Luther, his remarks on James 2.24. Many sweat hard at reconciling James with Paul, but unsuccessfully. Faith justifies, that's Paul's message, stands in flat contradiction to faith does not justify. That is James' message. Luther goes on to say, if anyone can harmonize these sayings, I will put my doctor's cap, my academic cap and gown on him and let him call me a fool. I'm not going to be so bold as to call Martin Luther a fool, but I am going to say he was dead wrong, dead wrong. And because he did not grasp the analogy of faith, it led him even to question the inspiration of the book of James. Why? Because if there is a contradiction, and I realize that God can't lie nor contradict himself, all scripture is God-breathed, well, if there's a contradiction here, my conclusion must be that maybe James is a weak letter, a weak book, semi-inspired, questionable, somewhat dubious. He got it all wrong because he did not listen to his fellow reformers, the analogy of faith, the rule of faith. Our premise, our starting point, again, God cannot lie, nor can he contradict himself. That is the framework in which I am working. 
All Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture can't lie, nor can it contradict itself. So there I have Romans 3, and there I have James 2. And I, ha I hear Paul saying that we are justified by faith apart from works. But now I hear James clearly saying that faith alone doesn't justify, but we're actually justified by works. How do I reconcile this? Well, the first thing I do is I give theological priority to texts that speak more clearly. I give theological priority to the book of Romans. I give theological priority to the book of Romans. Why? Because in the book of Romans, Paul is simply explaining the gospel. He is writing to a church of people whom he has never visited. He has never been in Rome. He's never been to this church. He is not addressing any problems in the church at Rome. He is simply explaining what it means the just shall live by faith. And he explains it clearly. And so we have the epistle of Romans, a clear, articulate explanation of the gospel, theologically precise. You go to just about any other letter in the New Testament, save his epistle to, to Ephesus, the Ephesians, and you are reading books that were penned, letters that were written to specific churches and people dealing with specific situations. And he is addressing specific issues. He is not giving a clear and concise, simple explanation of theological truth. He is hammering away at an error. And so you have to read his epistle to the Galatians like that. You need to read his epistle to the Colossians like that. You need to read his pastoral epistles to Titus and Timothy like that. And once you move beyond Paul, you need to read Peter like that. You need to read Jude like that, which we're going to see in the adult Sunday school. And you need to read James like that. They are not giving a clear, simple, straightforward, hey, here's the gospel, here's theology proper, doctrine 101. That is not what they are doing. There is a problem, a situation, and they are seeking to address it. Therefore, in understanding them, we give theological priority to Paul, Romans. All you little budding scholars, you know who you are. If you want to master some of the older ones as well, sure. If you want to master the Bible, if you want to be a theologian, if you want to stay on the narrow way when it comes to biblical interpretation, it really is simple. Do you know what it is? Master the book of John, master the book of Romans, and interpret everything else accordingly. And you will be just fine. You will have no problems at all. That is the analogy of faith. The church, and today, runs into problems when it loses sight of the analogy of faith, dives into books without even understanding the book, dives into chapters without understanding the context of the chapter in the book, and what is most common, dives into half a verse without any clue of its context in the chapter, in the book, or how it dovetails and relates in terms of the analogy of faith, and then builds something on it. Oh, 2,000 years of confusion would just, poof, be gone, dissipate if we would follow the analogy of faith. And when we do that with Paul and James, we see that this soon clears up and we understand that they are speaking of different subjects. They're speaking of different subjects while using similar language. That's how we reconcile them. The second thing I really want you to understand is this, the message of the gospel. Next slide, Ricky. So we need to be clear on the analogy of faith. 
And we need to be equally clear when it comes to the message of the gospel, the message of the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners from his wrath for his glory in Christ Jesus. There it is summed up. I put this slide right there, maybe a couple of months back. There it is again, the starting point when it comes to the gospel. God only accepts a perfect righteousness. There's the problem. There's the problem. His eyes are too pure as to behold evil. He will only accept a perfect righteousness in his sight. This righteousness, problem compounded, this righteousness is not found in us. There is none righteous. No, not one. We need a remedy. We need a solution. This righteousness, praise God, is found in Christ who lived and died. Oh, and I should have inserted in there and now lives as our substitute. He lived here on earth as our substitute. He died as our substitute. He rose again as our substitute. He lives forevermore as our substitute. And the righteousness that God requires is found in him. And here's the gospel. Here's the invitation. Here's the command. This righteousness that is found in Christ is made ours by grace. It is a gift. Through faith, it is a gift we receive. And faith in Christ. But there's a fifth part to the gospel, isn't there? The faith by which we are united to Christ is not fruitless, nor is it lifeless. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul explains all of that. It's clear. In James' epistle, he is not explaining all of that. This is what really stumped Luther. It's not James's purpose. It's not his goal. It's not the scope, the parameters that he has defined for which he is writing. Why is James writing? Simply to prove number five. That's it. He assumes one, two, three, and four. And his chief aim in writing is to prove number five. Because he is writing to a generation, he is writing to a church, he is writing to people who have fallen into a distorted view of the gospel because they have mis misunderstood the fifth point. The faith by which we're united to Christ is not fruitless or lifeless. You can take that slide away, Ricky. We are finished with the slides. But those are two pillars then. We're building upon. Underlying now our interpretation of verses 14 through 26. As yes, we reconcile and we discover that there is no contradiction between Paul and James when we simply interpret according to the analogy of faith. And when we keep in view the whole message of the gospel and understand what it is Paul is doing in Romans versus what James is doing here in this letter. And so James, he is explaining, yes, faith, he's arguing for this fact, faith is neither fruitless nor lifeless. How does he do it? Notice three things. There is a question. All right? That's easy. There's a question. Notice, secondly, where there's a question, there is a, an answer. That's the second thing. And then there is his proof. Proof. 
That's it. You get those three, you've got verses 14 through 26. There's a question, there's an answer, there's proof. Today, we're going to tackle the question and answer. And it will take us as far as the end of verse 19. And we're labeling this sermon false faith. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll pick up the proof from verse 20 down through verse 26. And I'm going to label that sermon true faith. And so right now, three divisions. Yes, question, answer, proof. All we're concerned with right now, we're not going to be too ambitious. All we're concerned with is, do I understand the question? And do I understand his answer? Here's the question, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? Do you understand his question? Do you really understand? His question. To understand James's question, we need to define his terms. What does he mean by faith? And what does he mean by works? When James uses the term faith, he is referring to head belief, or what we might call assent. When Paul uses the term faith, he is referring to heart belief. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Faith for Paul is heart belief. It is intellectual, it is emotional, and it is volitional. That is how Paul uses the word faith. That is not how James is using the word faith. He is thinking strictly, entirely of head belief. When James uses the word works, he is referring to the fruit of salvation. When Paul uses the term works, he is referring to the works of the law. And so again, Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. When Paul wants to speak of the fruit of salvation, he will insert the word good in front of works to differentiate it or in front of deeds, depending on your translation. But please grasp, they're using the same word. It's similar language, but they mean different things. James is referring to the fruit of salvation. Paul, predominantly, when he uses that term works, is thinking of the works of the law. Having defined James's terms, go back to the question, verse 14, and let me tweak it slightly for you. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has head belief, if someone merely assents to the gospel, but does not have fruit, there's no fruit, can that head belief Save him. That is the question. James answers it beginning in verse 15. The answer goes all the way through to verse 19. But his answer is an unequivocal no. He doesn't simply state no and move on. What does he do? 
he provides two illustrations in order to emphasize his negative answer. The first illustration is in the 15th verse, begins in the 15th verse. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you, you know, this individual who says he has faith, has head, head, head belief, assent, you say to them, that individual, go in peace, be warmed, right? You're poorly, poorly clothed, be warmed and filled. You're lacking in daily food, be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith, head belief, assent, mere assent by itself. If it does not have fruit, works is dead. That is dead. That is his answer. I've used this illustration here before. I was rummaging through some of my old sermon notes a while back, and I'd forgotten about it, and it serves, it serves the turn right now to illustrate precisely what James is, is speaking of. Um, I pray this doesn't happen, but um, you're feeling terrible, feeling terrible. And you make the appointment to go see your, your doctor, and he takes the blood, runs the blood tests, takes your, your blood pressure, calls you into his office with a startled look on his face because he's amazed you're still even walking because your blood pressure is just through the roof. I mean, it's terrible. Triglycerides, cholesterol, they can't even measure it on the scale. It's off the scale. He says, look, look, look. He looks you straight, you know, just puts his hands on your shoulders and says, look. Um, this is it. This is your condition. You need to do something about it. Starting today. That's it. Exercise. Don't do anything more. You know, just walk around the car once or twice because I don't want you doing too much. Build it up because you're in a terrible condition. That ticker of yours is about to call, call it quits. Most importantly, your diet. You're about 70 pounds overweight. And um, I'm not even going to take a checklist here of what your sort of daily intake is, but your diet, radical change. Or my friend, I give you days at the most. And there you are. Now you're wide-eyed, like a deer caught in the headlights. I hear you. Thanks for just leveling with me, doc, and telling me like it is. I, I believe you. I believe you. You exit his office. You get in the car. It's lunchtime. And down to the green pickle you go. <laughs> now, don't misunderstand me. Green pickle, nothing wrong with that. All things in moderation. But not for you, my friend, if this is your condition. But there you are at the green pickle. Burger with bacon and jalapenos, of course. Fries on the side. Sweet tea to which you add sugar. Oh, you believe what your doctor told you. There you are with your burger and fries and sweet tea. You still have 15 minutes before you need to be back to work. Dairy Queen just happens to be in between the green pickle and where you go to work. A blizzard would just tidy up that meal nicely. Not a large. You get just the, the kid's size because you're dieting after all, given what your doctor has just told you. Okay. Do you understand this? What's the question? Oh, I believe my doctor. He's even shown me the charts and the Blood pressure, and I feel lousy. I go up two steps and I'm out of breath. I know it's true. And I hear exactly what he's saying. I agree. 
I assent. I believe. I don't do anything about it. What's James' point? What good is that? Who cares what you assent to? What good is that? What good does it do you? Simply because you have head belief when it comes to the gospel, but you don't have any works. Oh, please understand. Can that kind of faith, can that head belief that does not produce any fruit, can that save you? It's not going to save you. It is a dead, meaningless, fruitless, lifeless, worthless faith. Oh, James, you're killing me. Move on. No, 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 no. He's going to stick with it. And he's going to give another illustration. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. It's the Shema, right? Back in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It is the first article of the Christian creed. We believe in the one true living God. You believe that God is one. You assent to that. You agree with that. You do well. I, I'm not disparaging that. That is a good thing. But please understand this. Even the demons believe that. As a matter of fact, the demons are probably more orthodox than you are. The demons probably have a better grasp of theology now, this side of the cross, looking on at the affairs of humanity and God, the unfolding of God's plan of redemption than you do. And, and notice this as well. They even respond. They shudder. It terrifies them. It's legion, isn't it? Prostrate before the Son of the Most High God. Have you come to torment me? I know who you are. I believe in you. I believe it wholeheartedly. This is not up for debate. There is no question about it. The verdict is not out. I believe it. I assent to it. I agree with it. And he shudders. That is not saving faith. It is merely head belief that obviously does not produce any works. Fruit. James' point is what? Well, if that's all you've got going for you, that you're theologically orthodox and that you assent to all the right things, uh, please understand that it's merely head belief. Uh, void of fruit, meaning what? That faith cannot save you. James isn't going to leave it there. This is the key text in the book. He is thrown out there the question. He has given the negative answer by way of two illustrations. And then from verse 20 through to the end of the chapter, he is going to lay down his proofs, just removing any shadow of a doubt. Now, my friend, there are many things I want you to get this morning, but far eclipsing them all, I want you to get this. Our generation, our generation desperately needs this text. Oh, it does. Our generation desperately needs to hear from James. Our generation has been inundated 
with false notions of the gospel specifically, what it really means to believe in Christ. I want you to meet two people. They aren't here this morning, and you're never going to actually meet them in the flesh. Imaginary people, hypothetical people, but very personal. I'm going to try to make them very real, and I want you to meet them. I want you to listen carefully, and I beg you, please, to follow this through. First person I want you to meet is Sandy. She was born in New Hampshire. I don't know why I landed on New Hampshire, but New Hampshire. Neither of her parents were Christians. And as a matter of fact, it was a deeply troubled home. This is one of the reasons she really enjoyed her summer vacation, which she would spend with her grandparents on her father's side in Maine. They were Christians. And through their influence, Sunday morning worship and family devotions became part of Sandy's regular summer routine. One summer... When she was 15 years old, she attended a youth retreat held at a local park and late into the night, huddled around the campfire, she followed one of the leaders as he led the gathered youth in the sinner's prayer. He assured them that God loved them so much that he gave his son so that he might forgive them. He assured them that God had already forgiven them. They just had to receive it. She returned home to New Hampshire on fire. She started attending Sunday morning worship at a local church down the street from where she lived, and she immersed herself in church-related activities. The following summer, she even took time away from her summer vacation with her grandparents to participate in a missions trip to Bolivia. But in her final year of high school, something changed. Her enthusiasm for spiritual things began to wane. Sandy's attendance at Sunday morning worship became sporadic at best. Her devotional walk with God completely dissipated. Gradually, she slipped into a routine of weekend partying, which eventually led to the regular use of hashish and marijuana. When her grandparents discovered what was happening, they pleaded with her to spend her final summer vacation after graduating from high school with them in Maine. But Sandy had other plans. She had met a boy, and they had decided to backpack together across Europe. Worried. Her grandparents contacted one of the elders from the church where Sandy had attended for the better part of two years. He willingly agreed to meet with after two or three failed attempts, he was finally able to get Sandy to agree to meet with him and his wife for coffee. They probed a little before addressing the blatant contradiction between her profession of faith in Christ and the patterns of sin in her life. Sandy was offended. She assured them that she still considered herself to be a Christian. She said she was still reveling in her justification in God's sight. She dismissed her lifestyle choices as minimally offensive before shutting down the conversation with what she perceived to be the clincher. Well, at least I'm not a hypocrite like most of the people at your church. Ten years later, Sandy works as a waitress in Atlanta, Georgia. 
She has been in and out of a series of sexual relationships. She now has a little girl of her own. The partying has subsided quite a bit, but she still engages in regular drug use. She enjoys talking about spirituality, right? She likes to listen once in a while to a certain preacher who tells her to embrace her brokenness. She really likes it when he declares that God unconditionally loves us just the way we are and makes no demands upon us. She loves that. Strikes a chord. One warm summer evening, Sandy stumbles out of another nightclub high on something. As she makes her way down the street, she hears a man's voice over a loudspeaker, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. She stops in front of the street preacher. He pauses, looks at her, asks her, are you a Christian? With slurred speech, she mutters, of course, I believe in Jesus. The preacher quickly replies, really? What makes you think so? What makes you think so? Verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That is Sandy. Oh, it, we've had Sandys go out from here, haven't we, over the past few years? I hope we're still weeping for them. I hope we're still praying for them. God, by His grace, will bring them to their senses. Their senses. Really impress upon them the weight of their sin and their guilt before a holy God and bring them to true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Sandy. I want you to meet Lewis. A little closer to home, Lewis was born in East Texas into a typical southern home. He accompanied his parents and younger siblings every Sunday to church where his father was a deacon. He had an uneventful childhood. When he was 10 years old, the church hosted a tent meeting with a guest preacher. On the last night of the revival, Lewis was stirred by the preacher's insistence that Christ had died for sinners. In response to the preacher's invitation, Lewis nervously walked the aisle to the front of the church where the preacher assured him that because of his public decision to receive Christ, his sins were forgiven. He was born again. He was baptized the next Sunday at his church. And the event was dutifully recorded in the big family Bible at home. Life went on as usual. Lewis learned to tithe. He learned the importance of not drinking, smoking, chewing, dancing, playing cards, or listening to heavy metal music. But he dabbled in some of these things as a teenager, and later as a student at the University of Texas, struggled for a time with immorality and drunkenness. But he continued to attend church most Sundays, as did most of the friends with whom he partied on a Saturday night. He met his future wife during his last year at university. Ten years later, they now live in a suburb of Dallas, where they enjoy great success in their professional careers. They have two children, and they are members of a thriving megachurch where their children actively engage in a number of cool programs, while they themselves have established a close social network of friends with similar backgrounds, experiences, and ambitions. Like his father, 
Lewis has become a deacon. He still tithes, and for the most part, he has moved on from the indiscretion of his youth. But there's a glaring problem. Lewis has never grown spiritually. Not one iota. He's never grown. His understanding of the gospel is pitifully shallow. Rarely reads his Bible and never, ever engages in prayer. He has never mortified a sin for Christ. He has never carried a cross for Christ. He has never sacrificed a comfort for Christ. He has never endured a trial for Christ. He has never cultivated a grace for Christ. He has never even skipped a nap for Christ. Lewis is practicing a popular form of cultural Christianity which requires absolutely nothing of him other than faithful Sunday morning church attendance, regular financial giving to the church, maintaining a presentable family, cultivating a disdain for abortion, homosexuality, and liberals, and regularly claiming to love God, country, and the military. These are the marks of his walk with Jesus. The cracks are beginning to appear. He has struggled with anger his whole life, and he's verbally abusive toward his wife and children. Because he refuses to address the issue, the strain on the marriage is growing. Moreover, he is driven by a love of money, love of money, a love of success, a love of power, a love of prestige. These are his priorities in life. In a word, Lewis isn't living for Christ, and he never has. The marital problems are mounting. One day, his wife convinces him that they need to talk to someone. They approach a man whom they respect because his brand of Christianity is a little different. After some preliminary discussion, the man asks Lewis, are you a Christian? Lewis answers without a moment's hesitation, of course, I believe in Jesus. The man replies, really? What makes you think so? Really? Why would you think that? James 2.18, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Does that bring it to life, the text? Oh, I pray it brings it to life. Does it impart the urgency of this text, especially in our social context? Oh, I pray it does. Both Sandy and Lewis have committed three, three mistakes, three errors in their thinking when it comes to what it actually means to believe in Christ. Let me give you these, and with these we will conclude. Sandy and Lewis are wrong about the object of faith. Just wrong. There's dead wrong when it comes to the object of faith. I believe. What am I believing in? Please listen very, very carefully. The object of saving faith is not a proposition. Christ died for sinners. I believe. Hey, I believe Christ died for sinners. That's the object of my faith. Therefore, I'm a Christian. The object of faith is not a proposition. 
The object of faith is not a promise. God promises to forgive those who believe in the Lord Jesus. Okay, well, I agree with that promise. I assent to that promise. I claim that promise. Well, that means I'm a Christian. No, propositions, gospel promises and gospel propositions are important. Don't misunderstand what I am saying. But they are not the formal object of faith. The formal object of faith is not a proposition, Christ died for sinners. The formal object of faith is not a promise, God will forgive those who believe in the Lord Jesus who die for sinners. The formal object of faith is a person. It's Jesus Christ. Christ is the object of saving faith. Christ is the object of true faith. We are not justified because we assent or agree with gospel promises or gospel propositions. We are justified because we believe in a person, Jesus Christ. To believe in Christ is to take Christ to myself and to entrust myself to him, whereby I become one with him. That faith is neither lifeless nor fruitless. It is living. Oh, Sandy and Lewis never got it. Poorly instructed, the gospel, half a gospel, poorly informed, poorly repeated in their church context, whatever messages they were getting. But the object of their faith, well, I believe that. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Sure. I believe he died for sinners. Sure. I believe I'm a sinner. That's what I believe. Therefore, I'm a Christian. I agree with all that. I agree with all that. Can't tell me anything I don't know already. I agree with all that. I'm a believer. No, the propositions and the promises are not the object of faith. It is a person. And to believe in the Lord Jesus is to consent to take him to yourself, whereby you become one with him and he becomes your life. Second mistake is this. They're wrong about the nature of faith. Wrong about the object of faith. And dead wrong about the nature of faith. To believe. To believe. Again, I say it a lot, but please, please, please. Listen carefully to my words. What I'm saying and not saying. Equally important. Listen carefully to this statement. To believe is not to perform a singular act of the will confined to a specific moment in time. Whether it's beside the campfire or the tent meeting or the church aisle or your bedside. That is not what it means to believe. Let me repeat it. To believe is not, this is, this is how it is by and large portrayed, but it's false. To believe is not to perform a singular, singular momentary act of my will, a decision confined, restricted to a specific moment in time. No, to believe is to receive Christ. To believe is to eat his flesh and drink his blood, whereby you are appropriating the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is not some past momentary transaction that you think you've made with God. Faith is to receive and continue to receive God's gift of His Son whereby you come to life. 
That is the nature of faith. And poor Lewis and poor Sandy, they err thirdly. How? They're wrong about the result of faith. They are wrong about the result of faith. We cannot be in union with half a Christ. Get that, my friend. You cannot be united to half a Christ. You can't do it. How many people are walking around today thinking they are? There is no union with half a Christ. To receive Christ is to take all of Christ. Union with Christ means he deals with the guilt of our sin. That is forgiveness. And he deals with the stain of our sin. That is sanctification, the pursuit of holiness and works, fruit. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, says Paul. There's that word good, so he differentiates it in his mind. Good, I mean good works. Not the works of the law, thinking these are things you do to earn your salvation. And now talking about good works, I've moved to the other side of conversion. You believed in the Lord Jesus, but understand he has saved you for a purpose. The purpose is good works. We're created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works. And this is James' point, and it's basically, it basically sums up his entire point. Good works are the demonstrable evidence of saving faith. The demonstrable evidence of saving faith. Again, verse 18. Show me your faith and belief apart from your works, fruit. I will show you my faith by my works. The grape on the vine, the flower on the bush, the apple on the tree, none of them apart impart life to the plant. The grape doesn't give life to the vine. The apple isn't why the tree is alive. Are you understanding this? The flower, well, I don't look at a flower and say, well, the only reason this plant is living is deriving its life from the flower. They don't impart life to the plant. What do they do? All of them. They simply demonstrate, prove that the plant is it's alive. I can look at the flower. This plant's alive. I can see the apples on the tree. This tree is alive. I can see the grapes on the vine, go through it, go through it, go through it. This is alive. This is James' point. James is not teaching salvation by works. No, 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 no. Definitely not. James would agree with Paul wholeheartedly, and I pray we are in agreement and understand this. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. James' point is simply this. Understand that faith is neither lifeless nor fruitless. Because the object of faith is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To believe isn't simply to agree with truth. I agree with that. What good is that, says James? Who cares what you agree with, what you assent to? Yes, we need to understand gospel propositions and gospel promises, but his point is this. No, to believe the formal object of faith is a person, a living person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we believe in Christ, we are taking Christ to ourselves, whereby we become knit together with him. All of the blessings and promises are now ours by virtue of the fact that we are one with him. 
And because we are one with him, guess what? I'm now one with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Meaning what? He now empowers me to live differently. And he produces to my amazement that fruit which is in keeping with a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suppose it's possible there is someone here who might think your works save you. Let's lay that one to rest. Put it to bed once and for all. We are saved by grace alone. We come as sinners in filthy rags. And we have never done anything pleasing or meritorious in the sight of God. The only, the only one who will stand in the sight of God is the one who hides in the righteousness of Christ. Your works contribute nothing. Oh, but please understand, yes, we're saved by faith alone. But that faith is never alone. And there might very well be someone here right now who thinks to themselves, you're thinking, your false faith, your fake faith, your mere assent, your head belief will get you to heaven. No, it will not. It will not. And what you need to hear this morning is exactly what the individual who's trusting in their works needs to hear. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must take the Lord Jesus Christ to yourself. You must eat his flesh and drink his blood, whereby you appropriate Christ and come to life in Christ. And my friend, you cannot remain the same. That becomes a faith that is alive. That becomes a faith that shows itself in works. That becomes a faith that demonstrates itself in good deeds. That is a faith that really shows and proves that I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, there are many complexities in there, aren't there? You, you, you veer ever so slightly to many of the things I've been saying, and you can end up quickly in error. You really can. Be careful, my friend. Think these things through carefully. And perhaps I don't say this enough, but I'll say it now. If you're troubled by something you've heard, as we've gone through these verses, and we're, many of these motifs will reemerge next Lord's Day, if this is troubling you, and something is not sitting well with you, don't squash it. Don't put it in the bottom drawer and try to forget about it. Don't think to yourself, well, I'll just start doing better tomorrow. No, my friend, you need to talk to someone. And you need to talk through these things. You need to wrestle with these things. You need to go to the Scriptures. And you need, by the help of God's Spirit, to ensure that you are believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are now walking in those good works which He Himself prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, our Father, who is sufficient for these things? Oh, the natural mind wrestles with what we have declared this day. The sinful heart finds it repulsive. The proud heart will not stand it. And so our Father, we pray that you would come and you would perform a great work in our minds and in our hearts. Give understanding where there is ignorance. Oh, give understanding light. Impart light 
where there is darkness. We pray that you would bring humility, poverty of spirit, where there is pride and hard-heartedness and stubbornness. We pray, our Father, that your kingdom would come among us. By your Spirit, through your Word, you perform a work in our lives this day that might only be attributable to your sovereign grace. We ask it for your glory in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.